Welcome to the intersection of theater and even more theater. You have achieved stage grok. Theater podcast coming to you from the geographic center of the American theater. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Today I talk with theater composer and lyricist Georgia Stitt from her home in New York. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, as I told you, the main thing I want to talk about is copyright. And, and I think I just want to start by asking you in this era of bootlegs and YouTube and other social media, how, how do we think about copyright? Do we think about it differently? And and what what, what do we how how do we approach copyright? How do we protect writers' work, et cetera, et cetera, in this new era? Wow, you're jumping right in. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, you know I've been thinking a lot about this in anticipation of this uh, this discussion. The the truth is that we. I personally don't think about copyright differently, but and I, it comes from the fact that I'm a writer and a copyright holder. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking specifically about your YouTube conversation, and I'll tell you my the way that I see it, and then we can dissect that and see what yeah. we think. But for me, if I am doing a concert at a cabaret venue, and I hire someone to record that concert, and that person records, you know, all the people singing my songs. Um, then I am the copyright holder of the songs and I get permission. I have all my actors and musicians sign releases. That's the thing right. that I always do. I have them right. sign releases and I get their permission to put um, their work on the internet. And then I put that on YouTube and definitely I get the songs get more exposure. Um, the performers get more exposure. I, as a writer, get more exposure because the, the songs live on YouTube. Right. I was able to do that because I own the content, I own the video, and I got permission from everybody in the video. Right. If someone else is sitting at a table and they record the concert and they put it on YouTube, all that exposure still happens, but it's a violation of my copyright. Right. And that, I think, is where the difference is, is what what do you own? Do you own the copyright or do you not? If that person sent the video to me and said, hey, I got this great video of your concert, do I have your permission to post it? Um, I would say, let me check with the performers, okay. or I would possibly say I have consent from them already, you know, but I'm a copyright holder. If they wrote me and they said, do I have permission? And I said, yeah, sure, go go for it, you know, especially if it's someone who I think will um, will help me get more exposure or help more people right. find the songs than my own profile would, then great. But if for some reason, like, that's, that wound up being a bad performance or, like, I have had concerts. So let's say I do 14 songs and two of them, somebody forgot the lyrics or I played a really bad chord or a, <laughs> right. something, and I think that's not the best version of the song. I have chosen that I don't want to put it out there. Right. And then a bootleg of it shows up. That's a violation of me because I didn't give you consent to record my performance. And, um, and what's so, most important yeah, to you is controlling your work, right? It's most important to me in an academic way. I mean, 
I, as a human being, I, you know, there are certain videos out there where I think I look better than others and where I sound better <laughs> than others or, you know, whatever. Um, but I, but I do think it's not so much about controlling it. Honestly, it's about the law. It's about me controlling, uh, the gate to my copyright. Right. If right. I, if I don't control the gate to my copyright, that's where, that's where things start to get crazy. I'll tell you about a pivotal conversation I had years and years and years ago with Julia Murney, who, um, <laughs> I don't think I'm breaching any trust by sharing this with you. She was playing Elphaba in Wicked on yeah. Broadway at the time. And she said, um, she said, it's a different experience than it used to be. I step out on stage to do one of my big solos, and I see all the red lights go on in the audience. That's what I see from stage. I wow. see the red lights go on. How and disconcerting I think, for the performer. Totally. She said, and I think some little girl in Australia is going to go on YouTube and search for this song in this show, and they're going to find this one, so I better not mess it up. And it's a different kind of pressure than it is if I am performing live for the people in the house tonight, which is the contract I signed. That's what theater right. is. Right. If, I, if I make a deal with you that you buy a ticket to come see me live, then what you're buying is admission to this experience where we're in the same room or we're breathing the same air. And if I mess all in it together, oh, well, I messed up. But if this is the archive that goes onto YouTube and someone and someone says, oh, well, Julia Murney isn't as good a performer as blah, 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 other one, because I had a bad night, then I, then you have to pay me more for that, <laughs> you know, yeah. or that's, that's a different contract. And so that starts to feel like a violation. Um, and, and, and honestly, actors do get paid for more for that. That's the reason why if you archive a video of a Broadway show, equity requires that all the actors get paid differently for that. Or if you make, if, you know, if you make a movie or something, or you make, when you make a sound recording of something, actors get paid and musicians get paid differently for that because it's an acknowledgement that this is the archive. Um, I feel like I'm just blathering, but I do. I guess I do have a lot. To no, say no, about this it. is this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. I, it's it's because you know there are literally thousands of shows on YouTube. I know. Um, and and you know the the drama kids in the middle of the country love being able to see that, but but there's this other side to it as well. All these artists who make this work, and it's. For me, you know, I have written shows and that kind of thing, so I, I understand that part, but I'm also a fanboy, so I understand that point. And it, to me, it just seems very complicated right now. It, it is seems very like complicated. I'm, I'm and I kind think, of torn about these questions. Yeah, I think there's um, what the law is and what is socially acceptable are so far apart from each other. Yeah. Um, and that's so I'm the head of the Copyright Advocacy Committee at the Dramatists Guild, which is really how we found each other to have this conversation um, through the Dramatists Guild. And uh, and and I I don't think the law is wrong. I think the right. part of our job at on this committee and as protectors of our copyright is to educate people about what the law actually is and why the law is in place. You know, as um, copyright holders, the like if if I've written a song, the only way that I have to make a living is to monetize that song in some way. So I can sell sheet right. music or I can create recordings of it or I can, um, yeah, uh, 
a license it so people can perform it in, in venues, either in a show or in a cabaret or something. But, but the, the monetization of that song is my income. And so if you are not participating in your end of that deal, if you are stealing the sheet music or performing the song without reporting that you've reported it, you know, I mean like a show, doing a show without right. a license or right. any of those sorts of things, then I – then you're actually stealing from me. You know, you're actually right. stealing from me. And and so I think when we think about um, the higher up, a show that is crazy successful, that gets hundreds or even thousands of performances every year, we think, well, it's not going to matter if I if I do this one production of this or if I photocopy this sheet music or if I download the sheet music from the Internet or if I, you know, put this on YouTube, you know. But, but that creates a mindset that it's okay and it's actually not okay. But then when it trickles down to, here's a composer that I've never heard of that doesn't have a publisher who is selling sheet music on her website for, you know, eight ninety five or whatever the number is. Um, and I decided that instead of buying it, I'm going to download it. Then, then suddenly sh- she can't make a living as a writer anymore. Right, and right. so that that is part of our pact as consumers and performers. And and I've I've heard the argument even that like you. You wouldn't walk into a store and say, I want these pair of jeans, but I don't want to pay this much for them. I'll just take them. <laughs> I'll just look and see if I can find them. And take right. them. Right. You wouldn't do that. You would say, I can't afford them. If I really want them, I'll save up and I'll get it. But um, but we don't have the same value on intellectual property, which is not just music. You know, it's the way we watch movies and the way we listen to music. And, the, you know, yeah. um, it's really a huge problem in the entertainment industry all around. Well, so – what what do we do or do we do anything <laughs> about YouTube? Because there are there are literally thousands of full shows on on YouTube. You know, high school and college stuff, but also bootlegs of Broadway shows. Do do we well, do anything about it? Do we just try to talk to people about it? Like, if I mean, it's really on the publishers to be doing that work. It's really on if um, if I'm the licensing house or the publisher of Guys and Dolls and I find a production of Guys and Dolls that's recorded in its entirety without the permission of uh, the licensing house or the estate, um, then I can send a cease and desist and I can shut it down. Um, If those have not been shut down, then then possibly they have permission. Sometimes a show will get permission to – you know, record. They probably, most of the time, in my experience, permission is granted with limits. Like, yes, you can make a recording of your cast doing this show, but you can't sell it or you can't put it on YouTube, but you can right. distribute it to your cast members. They can all have an archive copy or, you know, something. I certainly have right. archive copies of my shows off the soundboard, but I'm not allowed to use them as demos to share them out in the world. Right. Um, and so things come with limitations. And, uh, so I don't I don't know that it's every consumer's job to um to take down those shows. I think the the bootleggers, the people who are recording the shows know that they're committing a violation. Like we wouldn't have secret uh, hidden under our coat bootleg <laughs> recording <Right>. devices. <laughs> right. We wouldn't have ushers saying please put your phones away right. if 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 you know, we all know that it's illegal when we're doing it. And then when you post it, I think oftentimes people post it under you know, anonymous name. You don't put your name and contact me here if you're a lawyer. You know, you don't yeah. um, make yourself overtly obvious. Um, but I, I guess the answer to your question is not. Is I don't think it's the consumer's job to tackle that. I think it 
if you are a person of conscience, it's your conscience. It's not your job to participate in it. You should not be the one who's taking the bootlegs. Um, and I was talking about this today uh, that we all we all live in this sort of gray area of we know. I think this is part of the human condition. We know what the law is and we know what's exactly right. But when when something is socially acceptable, sometimes we go a little beyond what the boundary is. And I think of speeding as an example of that. Like the speed limit's 55, yeah. but we all know right. you can kind of go 65 and you won't get a ticket. Right. And some people go 75 and they push their luck. They're probably going to get a ticket if you go 85. You know what I mean? Like right. we all know the boundaries of what where the line is. And some people are more willing to cross the line or not. And I... Like, I think if I legally download a piece of sheet music and I make a photocopy of it and give it to my accompanist so that we can perform it together, to be 100% honest, that's not legal. The accompanist should also right. have downloaded and paid for a piece of sheet music. But it is such a social contract that we all do it. It's fine. Nobody's going to arrest you. I'm right. not – this is not me on your podcast granting permission. I'm just acknowledging <laughs> that I know that that happens. If I then have a friend who says, hey, do you have the sheet music for that song, and I photocopy it and give it to my friend, I'm pushing the boundary a little further. If somebody says, hey, can you email me a PDF of that song, and you scan it, you're going a little further. And then if either you or that other person says, I have a website where you can download a whole bunch of sheet music, I'll trade you mine for yours, and suddenly the PDFs are flying around, then we've gone too far. We've really gone too far because who involved in the making of that music is profiting from that? Nobody. Not right. the author, not right. the publisher, not the music copyist, not the orchestrator, not the recording engineer. I mean, not not that that person necessarily would have gotten money from the sheet music anyway, right. but all of the people that were involved in the making of the product that you are giving away are um, are suffering. You know, you're, you've lost control of your product. So I guess when you said that what's important to me is control is that's what I mean when I say the gatekeeper. If I open the gate too wide, I I don't trust that people aren't going to just take it. Right. Well, so so here's a a slightly more specific thing I want to ask you about. Um, Okay. Specifically, I'm thinking about you know people have you know there are these home movies of the original Follies in '71. And people have now put them together into what they're calling the Follies movie, <laughs> where they combine the soundtrack and the house sound system and the home movies and all that to approximate the original production of Follies. Now, wow. I am thrilled that this exists in the world. <laughs> yep. But, but technically, it's the same thing as somebody posting a bootleg of Hamilton right now, right? Yep. Do, do you think about those two things differently? I guess if I really were going to get deeply involved in it, I would wonder where the permissions were. I would wonder if anybody involved had just thought to ask if it was okay. You know, it I mean, is I'm possible. They don't in situations like that. I, don't know. I mean, if it's if it's a bunch of fans that have sort of done it in their apartments, um, or a fan that's done it in an apartment, that's one thing. Or if it's I mean, to be honest, some of the people that I know that are the uh, the biggest collectors of that kind of memorabilia are people in the industry, you know, lawyers and agents <laughs> right. and casting directors yeah. and people like that who collect that stuff. So, yeah. you know, I sometimes say I don't want to be the sheriff. I don't want to be the Internet. <laughs> like, you can't do that. Um, I'm just trying to make clear what the rules are. I also, I would love to see that. I would love to. I have read a lot about Follies. I would love to see it. Um, but I... But I think there's a way to make something like that with permission. I imagine right. 
Stephen Sondheim would also like to see it. I imagine, you know what I mean? I imagine that... Although, uh, it's it's what you were talking about earlier. It's certainly an imperfect record, you know, because it, I think it was shot during uh, um, rehearsals and so forth. Um, so, it's you know, it's, it would I wouldn't be exactly what Sondheim would prefer be preserved out of follies. But, you know, for somebody like me, it's this glimpse into this amazing moment in history. And I think from the Dramatist Guild point of view and the, the U.S. Copyright Office point of view, the point is that the reason copyright exists is that the person who owns the copyright is the one who gets to make the decision whether you see that or not. Yeah. You know, um, there's a there, – uh, there are a lot of stories. I was going to give a specific one, but I, I can give other – just in general. There are a lot of stories about, like uh, – somebody will be doing a workshop of a musical and that sheet music um, winds up in circulation. But as the right. show continues to be developed, those songs get cut or rewritten or something. And ultimately what winds up in the show is better. And the composer right. doesn't want that bad version out in the world. And I'm using sheet right. music as an example, but it would be true if somebody video recorded the rehearsal process, which is almost never allowed, you know, unless it's, yeah. You know, uh, the producers have brought in a team to do it officially, with, and everyone signed releases. But and that's why it's never allowed because it's not ready yet. You know, right. no one has no one has decided that that this is done. Um, and so I think it, even though we would love to see, and it sounds like we could <laughs> see this imperfect version of Follies that captures uh, what it might have been like, if the copyright holders say, yes, but that's so far from what it actually was that it actually damages my product. It makes you think, wow, that thing sucked, or that, oh, that's right. how that was, and right. that actually isn't how that was. Then it's their prerogative, but that's what copyright is. Yeah. It's, theirs, it's theirs to decide. And so if somebody issues a cease and desist or tries to shut that down, there are a number of reasons why, and that's what because you have violated their copyright. You know, well, I'm so with you that it's fun to see, and it's fun to, you know... <laughs> Right. For sure. Well, and there, there's also that doesn't make it legal. A, there's also a video out there of of a chorus line at the public before it moved to Broadway, and mm -hmm. and again for me that's just thrilling that I get this little glimpse. But I do keep thinking, yeah, but this is a bootleg. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I mean, sometimes bootlegs circulate for so long, and then they make their way back, and some lawyer says, oh, it's fine now. You right. know, it's fine. Um, so it's it's hard to make a blanket statement about those things. Um, so I think another thing. thing that's hard is like if it winds up being monetized. Like if I don't know oh, that right. piece, for example, but like if that piece was behind a paywall and the person right. who made the bootleg is generating income from it, and none of the people who created the original work are creating, that's a problem too, which right. is a thing that happens in the sheet music world too. Is it really people make money off other people's sheet music? Yeah, selling sheet music, or you know, there's there's an entire business of people transcribing songs from recordings and then selling sheet music, right. which because the sheet music wasn't available. And I will say that at the Dramatist Guild, one of the things we're doing is trying to encourage our members, you know, with hit or miss results, encourage our members. If your song is out there in the world and people are looking for the sheet music, one of the ways that you can cut down piracy is you can make the sheet music available. Like if, you, yeah. if you've allowed the world to put this song on YouTube and you like that people watch this famous person singing it, then make the sheet music available on your website. Yeah. So if somebody's like, yeah. oh, God, I love that song, I want to sing it, that they can find it instead of having to search the, the you know, piracy sites. Right. So we're well, working so, so on it from that end too. Are are we so I really think it's interesting and it it's so 
true that what's legal and what's socially acceptable have diverged <laughs> quite a bit here. Yeah. Um, are are we? I mean, I wonder, is it like prohibition where, you know, it's like we so ignore it that it becomes meaningless? Well, I don't think it's I don't think it's that that far. off. It's that far from itself. <laughs> what you know, what I'm trying It's that far away from what's legal and what's socially acceptable. Right. Um, and I if if we're asking that question, then I'd push us far in that direction and say, so what happens if copyright goes away? What if we say, well, we all just take it anyway copyright goes away. And I will tell you 100% for a fact that I, if I didn't have copyright on my songs, I would stop writing songs. There's just no way, there's no way to make money from them if you don't own them. Well, you'd uh, have to make a living Or you would work for a corporation. I'm sorry? You'd have to make a living some other way meanwhile. <laughs> right. I mean, I, yeah, I, I'd have to do something different um, that was not writing songs. And so ultimately it would I I foresee there are certainly people who will <laughs> comment on your podcast that this is not true because there's an entire other side of this argument I'm aware of. But I know if I could not monetize my catalog, I wouldn't I would no longer do it. There's just no reason to do it. And people say, oh, but you love it. And I think, well, I love a lot. I love cooking. I love hanging out with my kids. There are a lot of <laughs> right. things that I love. But the thing that I monetize is the thing that I've chosen to do for a living. And um, yeah. And so. If you think about that, I guess the other way that that could work is if suddenly there sprang up corporations that hired songwriters, as I suppose there were in like Tin Pan Alley days, like, you know, you could work or in movie studio days. But then songwriters don't own their copyright, and then we're just feeding money into corporations, not necessarily songwriters, which is arguably what the recording industry is doing right now. Um, So... So again, the Dramatist Guild, the reason that I'm such a, a, a proponent of the Dramatist Guild is because what they protect is an Arthur's right to own his or her own work. Um, that we're not, we're not employees of a, a bigger system. We are artists who make something and the thing that we make, we own. There's a great book I read called Digital Barbarism by Mark Halperin that is, uh, that compares, one of the things I remember taking from that book is if your grandfather built a building and left it to you in his will, then you would own that building. And no one could do it, you would own that building. But if your grandfather was George Gershwin and what he left you was his catalog of songs, the songs songs are eventually gonna go into public domain and, and people are taking the, you know, people are downloading the ceiling and how can you protect the thing that was made, the thing that you own? And if you take away the inheritance part of that and just say, I'm a person who builds a building or I'm a person who writes songs, why do we, why do we value the building more? And I think in some ways the answer, the answer is because it's tangible, because, like, yeah. because it's there and I can't move it. Like I can't yeah. decide it no longer has value. It's there. You can't scan it and send it as a PDF. <laughs> right. But that is literally the, the basis of intellectual property, that there are things that people own that are not tangible, that have value and um, and worth. I guess that's the same thing, value and worth. Um, well, so, and we have so, to protect those in some way, too. Th- this may be a more complex question than you can answer, but I, I, what I wonder about a lot is what if more Broadway shows could, you know, late in the run, before they close, record the show professionally, put it on the Broadway HD channel, whatever. Is that too hard because of all the unions and everything? 
Well, um, it is for, hard and it's expensive, but people are starting to do it. I mean, Broadway yeah. HD is an example, and I have recently been uh, uh, getting to know them and paying a lot of attention to what they're doing. And they said it, it took them a very long time, but they, what they did up front was negotiate with all of the unions. And yeah. so they recognized the value of the existence of a piece, Lily, this, and there is money to made. If you subscribe to Broadway HD, you pay, and right. then you can watch, and that money gets filtered out to all the original sources. So everyone has to sign off on it. And just like I said with my, my cabaret example at the beginning, if everyone has signed off on it and the copyright holders, the producers and the authors, and everybody has agreed to it and knows how they're getting paid, it's the greatest thing in the world. I think it's fantastic. Apparently it's extremely expensive right now, for that reason, because you have to pay right. everybody and um, and pay them like in perpetuity, and I mean I'm making things up because I don't exactly know what their business model is, but right. Um, right. but it is expensive because of how many people have to give their permission and and get a piece of the pie ultimately. Is but it does make it legal. Do you think that's that we're moving towards more of that and? Do you like that? Because <laughs> I know a lot of people are like, oh, what's amazing about theater is it's momentary. You know, it doesn't exist forever. It's like, yeah, but I'd love to be able to watch a theater piece over and over and over again. So I love it when a show gets big. I like it a lot. And I, I mean, you may want to interview Bonnie Comley next, who is the Broadway HD person. She's fantastic. Um, because she told me that, uh, that they have found um, statistically that it, if someone watches I don't. I don't exactly know. I know. Uh, well, I'm trying to think of something on their in, that's in their catalog that's still running. I'm not sure of an example, but like. Oh if, well, right now they, they just put the London Kinky Boots up. And that's still running. Okay, so if someone in America watches Kinky Boots on in London on Broadway HD, your fear would be that they've already seen it and then they would not buy a ticket to go see it in London. That somehow you're gonna steal from your own potential sale. Right. Because she right, said right. what she's found is the opposite. And I don't know what specifically to Kinky Boots, but in general what she's found is that it just builds the moment. You watch it on, on the video on Broadway HD, and then when you go to London, you're like, oh, I have to see this one because I've, I'm invested, yeah. I'm connected to it. And yeah. she used an example of like, in towns where there isn't a whole lot of professional theater, that people might not even know she said a lot of things, but she said like people might not even know that theater can be made at that level, and so you watch it and it opens up the yeah. door to something that you might be passionate about or something that you might want to do with your life. Or, um, and she gave the example of like someone, especially a show like Kinky Boots, that someone in a um, in a place where they feel ostracized might be afraid to buy a ticket to go see it or be see, be thought of in their community as someone who supports that but can watch right. it on Broadway HD and then recognize that there's a community for them. But she said there just are a lot of reasons why it could draw people to the theater instead of pulling away. But I think the fear is, as I understand it, um, when, when, in, when in a run of a show is the right time to record it and make it available. You don't want to yeah. do it at a time when it keeps people from buying tickets. Right. And, you know, and, but, but that's something that they're continuing to explore. Do you, do you have any sense of if we'll be getting more of that or because right now there are like uh, probably 10 or 12 recent musicals on Broadway HD, which is pretty cool. Um, I, I, su I suspect everyone is trying to make it happen. I mean, I'm not sure everyone. I know that the Broadway HD people are trying to make it happen, and um, and I know I suspect the producers are t watching and trying to figure out if it is helping or hurting sales, and at what point is the right point to do it, and um, and 
if you wait too long and your show's in trouble, can you afford to do it anymore? Or, you know, do you not have the money to do that? Because, you know, so I think, and I think when you start looking at off-Broadway shows and cabarets and live at Lincoln Center and those sorts of things, uh, the conversation changes because because of the budgets of the shows and and what it costs to record them. Oh, so in other words, like an off-Broadway show. Perhaps as time goes on, yeah. So like an off-Broadway show would have – Big picture have a much smaller budget than a Broadway show, and recording is really expensive, and so that makes it even harder. Yes, I okay. mean, this is where I don't want to get too far into their business because I don't know, right. and I'm right. I'm only speaking based on an anecdotal conversation I had with her. Right. But um, but I th- yeah, the budget is the same. If we're going to bring in our cameras and our crew, right. and we're going to pay all the unions, and we're going to all the things that we have to do. We still have, we still have a baseline of this in order to record your show, but you're operating at a fraction of what a Broadway show right. costs, so you don't have as much money to pay up front. So, in, I mean, perhaps there would be angels who say, um, it's very important to me that the show get recorded. I will put up the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it costs to record it. Sometimes, it, sometimes I mean, I'm at least a million. I have no idea, but much, much, much right. more money than anyone would budget. Um, or maybe as the the industry grows, producers will start amortizing that way from the beginning, or uh, capitalizing that way from the beginning. Then right. they'll say, right. "This is an important tool." In the way that it's just important that we make a CD. That's we have to have a cast album. That's part of if a yeah. show's on Broadway, yeah. it's a cast album. It's expensive. Maybe we also build into our uh, original budget that we're you know at blah 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 months after we've recouped blah 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 then we're gonna do a video I don't you know right. these are all business models I'm sure they're talking about and I'm just making up but right. but that's how I can see it possibly growing right yeah well and the and the other thing which will probably never come true but when, whenever I can get to New York I always go to the New York Public Library Theater on Film and Tape Collection yeah yeah. <laughs> um, because they have so many shows they've preserved, and and I wish some of those older shows, particularly the the you know less well known stuff, could be released someday. But I'm guessing that's essentially impossible because of all the the hurdles and all. Particularly if it's an older show, am I right? I don't know about impossible. I mean, I think each case is individual. Uh, it, it's a matter of having enough money to do it and having the permissions. I mean, in some cases. The copyright holders are now estates, and so it's like three right. generations down, and the, right. the copyright holder is really a lawyer in somebody's office. And, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, or who knows? So sometimes the people who are making decisions are not actually theater people or music people. Right. They're just, right. you know, they're looking at the bottom line and is this something right. that will benefit our estate or not? Um, so there are those reasons. I, I mean, I think the optimistic answer is with the right team of people and people passionate about it and, and the right people asking for the permissions, there's a lot that's possible, but, uh, but you just have to decide if it's worth what it costs to do it, you know, mm-hmm. because then if you, if you spend a million dollars to clean up a video like that and get all the permissions and pay, you know, back pay the unions right. and the blah, 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 then are you going to sell it? And is the fan going to pay for it? Or is the fan, fan going to just want to watch it for free? <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. Well, so so here's my last question. Well, actually, I have a last last question, but before that, okay. <laughs> um, are you worried at all about copyright? Is this just something we're going to have to work through because everything has changed now and we have to refigure everything? I am worried about it. I'm not worried about 
Well, I mean, I don't think I'm worried in a global sense about copyright going away, but um, we're working closely at the Dramatists Guild in tandem with the Education Committee. Uh, education Committee is the one that goes in and uh, talks about what what people are being taught at the university level and the high school level with specific to theater programs and musical theater programs. And there's been a lot of conversation about how do we diversify the canon and how do we yeah. you know, make sure that colleges aren't just on, only teaching white male playwrights and you yeah. know what can we do to move that conversation in a different direction as the playwrights, you know, as the canon <laughs> itself. Right. Um, and so one of, we've been working together, like what are high schools and colleges taught in terms of copyright? And there are some problems that start at the beginning, like, yeah. um, like when a professor photocopies a play and hands everyone a copy of the play and then doesn't take them back up at the end. And so you have, when you graduate, you have this archive of photocopied plays right. or songs or scores. You know, now that yeah. so many music directors work from iPads, um, so much sheet music is digital. And yeah. so it's very easy to be like, it's happened to me where I say, I need a copy of this song and someone sends me the entire score. So then I have a PDF right. of the entire score. I right. have a library of PDFs and then someone else says, I need the song. And it's actually easier to just send you the whole score than to pull out the one song right. you need and make a sub PDF. Yep. So I'll just send you the whole score. And, um, you know, the, that sort of proliferation, if we're doing that at the high school and college level, and then saying, but when you're a professional, you're no longer allowed to do that. We're not actually teaching anything. <laughs> you know, the, the students yeah. are going to be like, monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. Um, and so what are the models? One of the things we've been talking about with the publishing houses is uh, could we create sort of a reading library of the catalog? Like could you uh, buy an an educational license to digital copies of every script and score in the Samuel French catalog. And so for a semester, you have access to it. You can look at anything that's in our catalog. You can't print it, but you could look at anything. You could read any play. You right. could, um, you know, you could download any, maybe not download, but you have access to any score. You could sit at the piano and play through the whole thing. You could look yeah. at the orchestrations. That's um, amazing. I know. Wouldn't that be amazing? But you can't own it. You just, right. you know, sort of like a, a Kindle, I guess. I, I, yeah. don't, I don't know. But um, and and all the publishing publishers are like, yes, that's a wonderful pipe dream. It there's so many hoops that have to jump. You'd have to jump through to make that possible, and so many different permissions that we'd have to get. And we can probably start it with like this one person's catalog, and then expand and add on. I'm like, yeah, do that, do that. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's a lot more call. Most of us uh, consume uh, intellectual property digitally now, you know, and I, I used to, a few years ago, I said, yes, with the exception of sheet music, because we all print out sheet music and put it on the piano. But that's yeah. not true anymore either. People right. don't necessarily do that anymore either. So I think uh, libraries could be, digital libraries could be the way of the future if we can figure out how to um, how to protect the work, you know, and 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 what it means, you know, what it means if you buy a license, if you buy an educational license, if you. I hope that's the wave of the future. And I, you know, in this, in many ways, that's what Spotify and Apple Music and um, Netflix yeah. and yeah. there are lots of models for that. It just hasn't quite made it into our industry yet. Well, so let me ask you my my last question that I ask almost everybody. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm firmly convinced that we are in a new golden age of musical theater. I, I think it started in the mid-90s 
um, with a bunch of people, including your husband, Jason Robert Brown. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I think we're still in it. And I'm curious if you agree or disagree or sort of agree. Um, it's it's a loaded question for me. I think we're in a we're in a good time for musicals, and part of what excites me is that um, there have been so many successful original musicals that it's yeah. you know um, I I have personally adapted novels and adapted other things, but the the things that I'm most excited about are when you sit with a collaborator and you're like I have an idea for a story about this character who goes on the yeah. journey, and that's the musical that you write. And when you think about um, even something like Hamilton, which was adapted from a biography, is a very original story. And then yeah. Fun Home also was adapted from a book, but was a very original story. And so when you think about how successful those pieces have been that are not just remakes of movies, right. but that are um, somebody finding a theatrical way to tell a story, I agree with you that that is the more of that that is allowed and encouraged, the more I will agree that we're in a golden age. I'll just throw out my little plug (laughs) that I started a not-for-profit organization called Maestra that is uh, maestramusic.org, and it's an organization for women who uh, make music in the theater, the composers and the music copyists and the orchestrators and the music directors and all those people. And so we have a directory and we have blogs and we have all that sort of thing. But one of the things we built was a timeline of female composers through the musical theater composers nice. from history. Nice. So it goes back to the very beginning where we actually discovered a couple of female composers that I had never I have a master's degree in this and I'd never heard of them. And um and then there's, you know, the early 1920s sort of people and then right around uh, uh I I don't have it in front of me, but I would say the 30s, the women disappear. There are no female composers. Yeah. And then there is Mary Rogers and there are a couple of other, like, one-off. There's someone named Anna Russell who had a show, like, the song oh, Anna yes. Russell. And then there's something else, you know. And then there's nothing again until, uh, like, Mickey Grant, uh, Carol Hall, yeah. you know, in the early 70s. Right. So literally from, like, the 30s to the 70s, there's only Mary Rogers. Mm. And and when you think Mary Rogers was the daughter of Richard Rogers, so she had access to the industry in a way that no yes. one else did. You think what we call the golden era had one female composer in it. Yeah. So when you ask if we're in another golden era, I think I have I have redefined I've redefined that term. It doesn't feel so golden right. to me <laughs> right, right now. And then when you think about um, how we're running running into trouble with revivals because they have sexist stereotypes or they have racist stereotypes or something, yep. then those are pieces that came out of the golden era. I think yep. what you're talking about are like that business booms and that people love Broadway and people go to Broadway. But I think well, for, um, for me, really, it's about kind of the flourishing of the art form or cool, interesting new things happening. You know, are we making new rules? Are we discovering new ways to make a musical? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 feel I like definitely think so there's a lot more creativity. Going on right now. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a lot more creativity uh, happening. The it's it's very thrilling to watch, especially a producer take a risk on something, knowing how much money is at stake. You know, yeah, yeah. The, the budget of a Broadway musical is so enormous right now. Maybe not compared to a movie, but compared to almost anything else. The yeah. budget is so high that you think, I'm sitting in my home writing this musical that someday people are going to hopefully invest millions of dollars into materializing, yeah. you know, <laughs> making it happen. And someone has to say, I believe in this piece, and I believe in this idea, and I believe in these writers, 
and I'm going to make it happen. I'm putting my money behind it. I'm going to make it happen. And when I see that happen, I just get thrilled, especially when it happens with something that does not feel like a sure thing. It doesn't feel like that was a safe movie and that was a movie star and that was, of course, you're going to sell tickets. But I took a risk on the creative talent because I believed in this idea and that's what theater is capable of being. To me, that's that's the best thing about theater. I totally agree. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much for talking to me. I, I just think this is so interesting, and I really wanted to to talk to somebody in a you know kind of in-depth way about well, how do we think about copyright and, and what aren't we thinking about that we ought to be thinking about and all that. So anyway, yeah. so thanks, thanks I would love to have conversations. I mean, if people, I, uh, you know, if people have uh, compelling arguments back, I'd, I'd love to hear them, especially as, it, as we think about how we protect our work um, oh. out in the world. Yeah. Oh. Well, thanks so much. You're welcome, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This is Scott Miller. Now you, too, have achieved stage rock. See you next time.